Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. That's right. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, March 13th, 2022. I looked at three shows today, Brendan. I looked at State of the Union, which was like, I don't know, an hour and a half long or something. And it was hosted by Dana Bash. Then I looked at This Week, which was hosted by Martha Raddatz. She was in Ukraine, of course. And then I looked at Meet the Press, which was hosted by Chuck Todd. What did you look at? I took a look at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan and... No longer co-hosted by Scott Gottlieb, we should say. He hasn't been on for a while, but it makes sense. Who knows? There's a new variant. She's going to need him back. I would hope there would be another way that she could bring him back <laughs> without us enduring yet another variant. But yeah, so it was Margaret Brennan at on Face the Nation. I also looked at Fox News Sunday hosted by Brett Baer. So Naomi, let's get straight into our quality questionable on this Time Change Sunday, where we are speaking later than usual as a result. Yeah, we didn't really learn our lesson last time when we didn't prep our daughter for nope. the time change. Nope. And so we we didn't do it again. We just don't have the time, okay? We don't we have just, time, we don't to, deal have the time, the time to deal with the time change. Exactly. So therefore, we are going to go straight into quality <laughs> questionable. Naomi, what was your quality or questionable moment this week? Okay, so I'm kind of cheating because the quality moment is for Polylog. Aha. I stand by my segment last week to talk about the need to have a nuanced, robust conversation around no-fly zones, especially, particularly over Ukraine. For anyone who didn't catch last week's episode, I was talking about how I felt like as media consumers, we need a better conversation, better explanations around what the no-fly zone means, what it doesn't mean, mm-hmm. and what people how people are using the term in different ways and and essentially yeah so that as that request evolves or you know that need evolves we as you know american constituents and media consumers understand that evolution and that's exactly what we saw today this is a quick blurb from an expert panel on Meet the Press. This includes Marie Yovanovitch. She is the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And it also includes Admiral James Stavridis. He is a former NATO Supreme Allied commander. I had a Democratic congressman from Chicago, Mike Quigley, say to me, you know, the Ukrainians have earned it, the way they fought these first two weeks. He said, they've earned our support at this point because they are fighting our fight. And he was basically leaning into the idea of a no-fly zone of more like this. Is that where you are? I think it deserves serious consideration. I think we need to look at the gamut of options that are out there for us. We need to calculate the risk and be smart about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there is also a risk when you're dealing with somebody like Putin 
of not responding um, boldly enough mm-hmm. because he will take advantage of that. He senses fear. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, let's talk about what you just heard there from from uh, Jake Sullivan. He said, and I want to get to the chemical weapons, severe consequences. Clearly, they want to create the amb- ambiguity out there. What's realistic if they use this? What what can or should we do? I think you have to, at that point, consider uh, a no-fly zone, I think is a pretty logical next step. But I'll give you a halfway house. Mm-hmm. That would be going back to the idea of getting fighters in the hands of the Ukrainians. And I get all the puts and takes of that. So you want Ukraine to do the no-fly zone? They would basically be the ones to do it, not NATO. Is that that the goal in this case? It is. And so what you would want to do is put fighters in their hands. And the way to do that, Chuck, would be to have Ukrainian pilots come to NATO, Mm -hmm. train briefly, and then fly those fighters back. So much more nuance here than what we hear from a lot of the other shows. Absolutely. And, you know... I don't know if every American needs to keep up with every ins and out of what the no-fly zone is being proposed to be. But if you couldn't really follow along last week, like this conversation might be a little confusing. Like there's a need for it to be to bring people into the conversation to understand what we're talking about. So the quality questions and dialogue was for us, Brendan. <laughs> Very good. Well, I want to point out on the fly zone, no fly zone issue that on Face the Nation, Anthony Salvanto, their polling guru, was on talking about recent polling that CBS News had done about this topic. And he noted that when they poll people, a majority of Americans say that, yes, they support the U.S. doing a no fly zone and enforcing it. But, he says, when you follow up and ask, what if Russia takes that as an act of war? What if that leads to a direct U.S.-Russia conflict? Then support drops down to 38%. Right. It's People are supportive of it in theory, but then when you get into the specifics of it. Yeah, of like what it might mean, what the consequences might be of that. Like, consequence-free? Sure, let's do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Brendan, did you have a quality or questionable moment? Yeah, so this this is so outside of left field. It has nothing to do with Ukraine whatsoever. It has nothing to do with coronavirus, really. It doesn't have to do with anything in the news, but it struck me as so deftly worded that I had to give it credit. It just stunned me at how well done it was. But it's very subtle. So here it is. This is on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan spoke with Albert Borla. He's the CEO of Pfizer. We've seen him on Face the Nation before. He was talking about COVID. He was talking about, for example, he said that she asked about fourth doses of the vaccine. And he's like, yeah, we already know that you need fourth doses. Hello, duh. But he was going on to talk about mRNA vaccines, this new delivery mechanism for vaccinations that made it possible for us to see such an effective coronavirus vaccine so quickly. And Margaret Brennan asked him, well, what does the development of mRNA vaccines mean for other sicknesses out there? Take a listen to a little bit of this exchange. What do you think with the technology, the technology that Pfizer used and Moderna, um, mRNA technology, it's still new. And it seems like there are a lot of possibilities for where this could be used. What's the next solution around the corner? The second is uh, oncology, cancer. 
Right now, a lot of research is happening by trying to use our, to train our immune system through mRNA, not to attack the virus, as we do with uh, coronavirus, but to attack our cancer cells, to recognize them as an enemy and try to attack them. Highly that will revolutionize the field if we will be able to be successful with that. How far are you from that? You know, I think there's so much work happening even before the vaccines. We started with, uh, with cancer in RNA. Um, we will know if we are successful, I think, in the next two, three years. So first of all, huge news, very exciting, possible developments on cancer in the very near term. But what really struck me from a communications, public communications standpoint on this was that answer that we got from Albert Borla, the question and the answer. The question from Margaret Brennan was, how far are you from that? This is a revolutionary change in the way we treat cancer. Borla's answer could have been five years, 10 years, we don't know, there's lots of questions out there, or it could also be like a, a solid promise, you know? I, I think of, for example, all the talk about driverless cars, and everyone says, oh, we're going to have them in 10 years. Believe, you know, mark your calendars. In 10 years, we'll have, you know, fully autonomous driverless cars. And that hasn't happened, right? And it keeps not happening. But look at how Albert Borla answers this. Look at how he phrases it. He says, we will know if we are successful in the next two to three years. What a way to say that. Like, he's not saying, he's not promising that we will be successful in the next two or three years. He's saying we will know if we are successful in the next two or three years. And that just feels like such a... Now, he is a doctor, right? He is a, a scientist himself. And that seems like a science-based way of answering that question. He's not making promises, right? He's not even making solid predictions. All he's saying is we'll know if we're on the right track here in the next two or three years. I just love that because you get the answer in terms of timeline without the promise. And so in two to three years, people can't say, hey, you were wrong about that because we didn't get it. You could say, no, I, I said we'd know by then whether we got it and we didn't. So there you go. I wish more people out there particularly in politics, but in lots of things, in technology, we're able to have this level of humbleness at the face of, in the face of big change. Well, and I'd hope that this is the kind of science journalism that we should expect, like less pronouncements, more possible paths, like not, like, I want to see fewer shaky predictions. <laughs> yeah. And more like this is what we are exploring. This is what we're investing in. This is where, you know, this is what we're hoping to see. Because stop lying to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For example, here's one thing where it's like stop lying to people. There was a story and Dan Diamond, we know we met him from Politico. He's now at the Washington Post. He did a story on the time change right and the fact that every year there's a group of people in congress who start investigating should we get rid of this time change thing that's going on and he wrote it and diamond had a little fun with his article it was pretty long but it was kind of fun you know talking about time and the time it takes to to have these 
discussions as well. But is it is that actually going to happen? Like, how many times has that been talked about and it just doesn't happen, right? So stop wasting our time, right, with things that aren't going to happen or promises and predictions. Like, we would all love it, and most Americans would, would agree and do agree when you poll them that we shouldn't be changing our time like this all the time. But it seems like we continue to waste cycles on conversations that don't go anywhere and that's just gets very frustrating after a while not that it's not important but that it doesn't go anywhere so i would kind of like i don't know it's like we either need to hold these politicians accountable for getting something done that the american people support or stop humoring them as if they're actually doing something about it when they don't right exactly not getting fake applause from us all right, Naomi. Well, that leads us to our main segments. We didn't really say what they were about, but I think it's pretty obvious mine's going to be about Ukraine because there was hardly anything else discussed. I'm also talking about Ukraine, specifically the potential for escalation with Russia. There was quite a bit of talk around Trump and like Bill Barr has a book and, you know, people talking about Trump trying to backpedal some of his Putin comments and I don't know about you, Brendan, but like, <laughs> I'm just not going to talk about that on this, sh- like on our podcast, like unless it's genuinely newsworthy, I am over talking about that man. So, Brendan, what is your focus in terms of the Ukraine coverage? Yeah, my coverage of Ukraine is and the war of aggression that Russia has on it is actually about the impacts of that conflict on the U.S. and how these shows, the two shows that I covered, Face the Nation and Fox News Sunday, dealt with that in looking through the United States lens, because, of course, these are American shows about American policy. So, of course, they could talk just about what's going on on the ground. They could talk about international impacts. They could talk about all sorts of things, military movements, and some of them did. But... Really, this is about U.S. policy, how it affects U.S. policymakers, how we hold those policymakers accountable for what the American people want. So just to understand, you're saying having the American-centric perspective of the coverage and its use, that it's worth it, that it's like, what, all of the above, or? Right, no, absolutely, that that is appropriate for these programs. Got it. And that they shouldn't get, you know, so full of going deep into the foreign coverage that the impacts on Americans is kind of lost. And that's kind of how it was early in our coverage of Ukraine on the Sunday shows. We noticed that a lot of the Sunday shows would talk about Ukraine, what Russia might do, without a lot of reference to how this affects the viewers at home. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. Thanks. So beginning first with U.S. military involvement, Naomi, you talked quite a bit about the no-fly zone earlier in this quality questionable segment. But I want to talk about one of the major storylines that emerged out of the Sunday shows last week, persisted throughout all of last week, and then ultimately didn't lead to anything. And that is the fact that Ukraine has been asking NATO and the United States for military fighter jets. The U.S. seemed to agree to that last week with a complicated process engaging the country of Poland 
And then that kind of fell through. So Margaret Brennan asked the minister, the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitro Kuleba, about that this week. This was her second major interview on the show after having spoken with Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. Here is her bringing up this issue with the foreign minister of Ukraine. It was on this program last Sunday that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said uh, the decision by Poland to provide fighter jets to Ukraine gets a green light from the United States. Then, days later, President Biden spiked that. Do you have a sense that any country will give you fighter jets? Well, it's frankly, everything that happened uh, over the fighting jets in the last week uh, is kind of a diplomatic mystery. On the one hand, everyone is ready to do to do it, but uh, uh, nothing is happening, and we are not getting the planes. Uh, we have no time for this kind of ping pong diplomacy. We need planes to save lives of our people and uh, to stop rush to stop to put an end to Russian domination in the sky. The United States argues giving these jets would be escalatory and a risk to NATO, a risk to the United States, and that you have things like drones that work just fine. I, to my view, this logic is flawed because uh, how, drones are not escalatory and planes are escalatory. What is the logic behind it? Anti-tank weapons are not escalatory and uh, uh, planes are escalatory. First, what else Russia has to do for everyone to understand that they already reached the peak of escalation? They used, as I mentioned in the beginning, weapons prohibited by the by, by international conventions. Why are we so afraid of uh, another another escalation? We need uh, the, we, we need to defend ourselves. So this discussion of the planes and why the United States seemed to do it and then decided not to do it last week took up a large portion of Margaret Brennan's interview with the Ukrainian foreign minister. And it seemed like a really important conversation. It was good that Margaret Brennan brought it up and engaged the ambassador on that. However, it was kind of head-scratching because moments before, Margaret Brennan spoke with the national security advisor, as I mentioned, Jake Sullivan. And in that interview... There was no mention of this topic. They didn't talk about, the, they didn't say the word aircraft, airplane, plane, fly, jet. None of those words showed up in the entire interview. This topic was not discussed. And that's a big miss for not pressing Jake Sullivan about helping Ukraine with air defense. Especially since, as Margaret Brennan noted, the topic was broached to her in person last week by the Secretary of State. And then she made it the main, fo main focus of her next interview. Wow, that's super surprising. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you were to think about this on another topic with like a Republican senator and a Democratic senator on something that they were had negotiated on on some big legislative package and then suddenly it fell through, you'd want to hear both sides. Right. It's It's very peculiar. Yeah, and like I understand that Margaret Brennan kind of brings the U.S. argument into her questioning, maybe based on, you know, certainly based on other statements that the U.S. has made. But still, she should have pressed the American on this topic while they were on her show. 
maybe with some of the arguments that we ended up hearing from the Ukrainian ambassador. Or other counter-arguments, which there are many, to the U.S.'s decision to pull out of that deal last week. Absolutely. And then in thinking about the questions to the Ukrainian ambassador, you're kind of asking him questions, even though you missed the opportunity to get the most up-to-date explanation. Yes, that's very true as well. Exactly. Exactly. Now, one person who didn't miss bringing this up was Brett Baer on Fox News when he spoke with the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman. But the MiG-29 situation, these jets from Poland, really seem to be a mixed message. Republicans are now talking about that openly, uh, criticizing the administration. Here's Senator Tom Cotton. Take a listen. They're saying, on the one hand, Ukraine is not effectively using its current aircraft and it can't effectively use this, this aircraft. So the gains would be very small. But on the other hand, Vladimir Putin is going to view this as such an escalation that he might strike the United States or strike NATO. Both of those things can't be true. The Ukrainians don't need applause. They need jets. They want MiGs. Get them the MiGs. The Ukrainians say... If the Ukrainians say they do want these MiGs, whether we assess that they're good or not for the battlefield, why not get them that? So, look, if I were President Zelensky, I would want everything and anything I could possibly get. So I understand this. The Pentagon, however, made an assessment uh, that trying to move these planes was very complicated, that backfilling them was virtually impossible, that what Ukrainians really needed were anti-aircraft, anti-tank and anti-armor weapons, which is what we are supplying them in great measure and coordinating with other countries to do the same. So I understand the frustration. And one of the things I think has been really terrific in this horrifying situation is there has been bipartisan support for Ukraine. Uh, I'm really grateful that Congress Congress uh, recently passed the legislation that provided an additional $200 million in drawdown uh, that Secretary Blinken signed mm -hmm. out yesterday. So this is a bipartisan effort at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, there was a strong bipartisan delegation in support of Ukraine. And there is that kind of support on Capitol Hill, which I think sends an important signal not only to Ukraine, but to Putin that he can't divide America, he can't divide NATO, he can't divide Europe, he can't divide uh, the world. So here you see Brett Baer not only ask the question, but include criticism from Americans, not just Ukrainians, about this decision not to send the planes. And it's, it's a strong question. It's a tough question. It's the type of question that we should have seen from Margaret Brennan. And yet we didn't see that question. And what did we get? We got also a different answer, right? The answer that we heard today from the Deputy Secretary of State was not about escalation. It was about backfilling the planes and this being complicated and not really what the Ukrainians need. So all that was missing from the conversation on Face the Nation, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, this just seems like a very short-term answer that the administration can give, where the questions that are coming in and the skepticism from those clips that Brett Bear shared have a much longer shelf life. Yeah, very true. So now let's shift on. So again, I want to credit these shows for talking about U.S. military involvement and seeing the conflict through that lens because it is important for the type of program that we're talking about, these Sunday news shows. Now let's shift to the economic impact, which 
Margaret Brennan did a good job on Face the Nation, highlighting by speaking with a broad range of experts, including the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva. And I think questions like this that are sharp and answers like this that feel pretty definitive are helpful for the audience, which, remember, is an audience not just of the public, but also of policymakers. Are we looking, because of the debt levels you talk about, the vulnerability, are we looking at the potential of this becoming a financial crisis for the rest of the world? For now, no. Uh, When we look at the uh, total exposure of banks to Russia, it is about $120 billion. Not negligent, but definitely not systemically relevant. And what we are also uh, seeing is that while inevitably we are going to downgrade our growth projections for 2022, it is still going to be a positive growth rate. For countries that have been fast to recover Mm -hmm. from the COVID crisis, like the United States, growth is robust. It is those that were falling behind where the impact is more severe. And let me say this. Yes, war in uh, Ukraine means hunger in Africa. But war in uh, Ukraine also has social implications for many, many countries through the three channels that are already demonstrably impactful. One, commodity prices, Mm -hmm. energy, grains, fertilizers, metals, to the impact that has on inflation. And in countries where inflation has already been high, this is dramatic. Like the United States. Like the United States. So this is a really intelligent discussion. But of course, there is one early answer there and phrase that stood out to you, Naomi, as, as we heard that. System, what is Systemically system? relevant. Systemically relevant. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. (laughs) The Russian economy, essentially, she is saying, is not systemically relevant to the rest of the world. And therefore, we are not looking at another financial crisis. But that doesn't mean there aren't impacts, as she goes on to talk about, including inflation and the cost of energy. And when it comes to energy, there was quite a bit of discussion on that as well. But one interesting voice on that was Joe Biden, who was quoted on Fox News Sunday, saying this about gas prices in the U.S. The second big reason for inflation is Vladimir Putin. From the moment he put his over 150,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, the price of gasoline in January went up 75 cents. President Biden telling House Democrats at a retreat on Friday who he thinks is to blame for surging gas prices. So there's one example of the rising gas prices and the impact on Americans. And on Face the Nation, there was further polling on this topic from Anthony Salvanto. Here's some of that insight that we saw. Margaret, there is wide support for oil sanctions against Russia and something we don't get to say every day. It is bipartisan. In fact, really strong with both Democrats and Republicans. But importantly, in a poll, you want to follow up and ask people then 
What if that means you're going to pay more at the pump? And when you do that, majority support remains at 63%. Now, this is something we'll have to watch. It might depend on just how much those prices rise. But you ask people why it is that they support the sanctions. And it's not that they say they can readily afford it. It's that they say they want to help Ukraine and punish Russia. Margaret? Very surprising there. I actually did not expect people to be so quickly on board with these rising gas prices as a result of the Ukraine crisis. Well, some of the pushback I saw on some of the shows I looked at was particularly from Republican legislators is that inflation was going up prior to the Ukraine crisis. So putting it all on Putin is a bit much. Well, I don't know that Biden was putting it all on Putin. We heard his quote there. He said the second big reason for inflation True. is Vladimir Putin. I don't know what he's what the original first thing was that he had said. But there was a, a really good discussion. I think it was just COVID in general. There, yeah, there was a really good discussion of inflation on Face the Nation as well with an expert from Alliant who we've seen before. And I would actually recommend that the audience... If they can, seek out that interview in particular from Face the Nation because it was very, very eye-opening and really laid a lot of blame at the feet of the Federal Reserve. And personally, that's why I really questioned why as inflation started rising and continued to rise through December, why in the world the Biden administration chose to reinstate the current Fed chair after such a humongous devastating miss on inflation, which is the main thing that their job is to control. But moving on to something that kind of shapes all of these issues, and that is how we view the Ukrainian fight against Russia. And there's so many inspiring stories out there, including one story from the managing director of the IMF, who said that she's on the phone with people, you know, financial counterparts in Ukraine, members of the Ukrainian government, and hearing air raid sirens on the line, and yet they're still sitting at their desks working, getting things done. And she said she's got family in Ukraine, and they can still take money out of the bank, out of the ATMs, even in cities that have been highly targeted by the Russians. And so she's just like in awe at the way that they are holding their country together. And another voice, of course, that we keep hearing holding that country together, of course, is Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president who's in Kiev right now, which is currently being encircled by Russian forces. And it seems like every week he has a John Paul Jones moment, like with an incredible, incredible quotation that is simply inspiring everybody in America to stand behind Ukraine. Here is one such quote that I heard featured on both of the programs that I covered today. President Zelensky earlier warning them against it. If they kill all of us, then they will enter Kyiv. If this is the goal, then let them enter. But they will end up living alone on this land, certainly without us. They will not find friends among us. So such a powerful voice. And when that is combined with the stories we hear from Ukraine of the Russians targeting hospitals, targeting even children's hospitals and schools and businesses and civilians 
it becomes really hard to not throw all of our support, everything that we can behind Ukraine, including potentially our own military in the form of a no-fly zone or other engagements. And that was something that I heard unbelievably from Margaret Brennan herself in her own closing statement, something that I can't remember her ever doing before on Face the Nation, but something that we heard quite frequently from former host of Face the Nation, John Dickerson. And in this clip, you'll hear her referencing Vladimir Putin and his targeting of Ukraine. The U.S. now says he's considering using chemical weapons. Russia would pay a severe price if they use chemical weapons. But what is that consequence that could stop Putin? President Biden has drawn a bright line to say the U.S. will not use military force to stop Russia from killing Ukrainians. Is there a level of catastrophe that might change his mind? Vladimir Putin has terrified European leaders who admit their past complacency may have emboldened him. Britain's top diplomat. The invasion of Ukraine is a paradigm shift on the scale of 9-11. The era of complacency is over. So Margaret Brennan there providing her own series of questions on this topic. But although she might sound a little warmongering there, it is it does bear questioning, right? Because the United States did not want to put sanctions on Russia until they actually invaded Ukraine, even though Ukraine was saying, no, you must do it now. And once again, it seems the United States is saying we are not going to be engaged militarily in Ukraine. But perhaps there is a level, as Margaret Brennan says, of catastrophe that will change America's mind. And once again, we are waiting for that catastrophe rather than, it seems, preventing it. Yeah, I. Th- this is actually a great segue into my segment, Brendan, because there is something about this question, about exploring what's the limit, that on the one hand seems valid, Mm-hmm. especially as Russia is actively exploring it and threatening chemical or biological weapons of some kind. And also the conversation itself, sometimes de- depending on the tone, the framing, who's leading it, can feel very jingoistic. Absolutely. And and we can't just not have the conversation at all, but how do we like talk about it in a way that is preparing Americans or... You know, giving Americans, as you're saying, kind of framing it and the impact on Americans in a way that is tangible, that in a way lets them know how it will or could impact their own lives. And so, you know, that that kind of takes me to my segment where it's like, how do we talk about escalation, Russia's potential slash likely escalation without being jingoistic? Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear your segment to get the answer. I don't really have a lot of answers. I just have lots of questions. Uh (laughs) Uh, A typical Naomi stance. Uh, But let's dive in. So the first thing I wanted to note was that I thought this there was a comment on a panel on State of the Union, which was actually really quite helpful. There was there were a lot of interviews by administration officials, you know, leaders in Ukraine, but this was from former Democratic Congresswoman Jane Harmon. And 
I just appreciated her explaining the different kinds of escalation that we might see from Russia. Congresswoman, you were uh, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. Do you have any sense that we, the U.S. or the West, knows the answer to the congressman's question about what Putin is really going to do? I actually think we've been very good on intel Mm -hmm. and we have figured out Putin's playbook. But it is escalatory. As David Sanger said earlier this morning, there are four more places for him to go. Uh, Nuclear, chemical, biological and cyber. And it's surprising that he hasn't used major cyber weapons yet. I think we're much more sophisticated than we used to be, including our private sector. But as uh, uh, Mark Warner has pointed out over the last months, cyber doesn't know national boundaries. And if cyber is used big time in Ukraine, it's, there's not much left to attack in Ukraine, sadly. Uh, it, and it morphs over into Poland, then NATO's being attacked. So I think the big problem is we have different definitions of escalation. And I think the big thing that Biden's worried about, and I agree with him, is a miscalculation. And he's trying to keep things in a in a neat box. Unfortunately, the box isn't very neat. Now, this is totally helpful because, you know, as we're talking about escalation and Ukraine needing these MiGs to, you know, protect themselves from bombs and missiles from Russia You know, there's all these other potential threats that are just looming in the distance, some of which might be contained within Ukraine and might be devastating and heartbreaking. I'm thinking in particular chemical or biological weapons that are done on the Ukrainian people. But then there's, you know, a nuclear attack that could affect nearby states And then you have cyber attacks, which could impact nearby states or other supportive allies. And so it it just goes to show, like, when we're talking about escalation, people sometimes have, like, a very specific picture in mind that they're wanting to talk about or say we need to prevent or need to be ready for. And that's not how this always goes. Absolutely. And I'm just like listening to this and thinking how little is actually discussed about these specifics. Absolutely. Which, you know, is kind of a jingoistic playbook, right? To only talk about the, the question of whether we get engaged rather than the consequences. Mm hmm. But for the sake of example, mostly because most of the interviews that I saw today focused on much more of a typical military escalation, let's take a look at how Jake Sullivan answered this question on State of the Union about this canceled deal to get these very particular type of aircraft to the Ukrainians. So we'll actually hear it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The answer to the question that Margaret Brennan didn't ask from Jake Sullivan. So I'm excited to hear it. This week, the U.S. rejected a deal that would help get Polish fighter jets to Ukraine, but do so through a U.S. military base. The Pentagon, as you well know, was concerned that that would be perceived as an escalation by the U.S., uh, be perceived that way in Russia. But Zelensky is still pleading for help. Members of your own party are urging uh, them to get, urging the U.S. to help them get planes. So are you talking about another way to get Ukraine these planes, or are you ruling it out completely? 
Well, the president listened to the assessment of his intelligence community. He listened to the advice of his military commanders. He consulted his NATO allies, and he ultimately determined that the risk-benefit analysis of flying planes from uh, NATO bases into contested airspace over Ukraine uh, did not make sense, was not uh, something that uh, he would authorize. What he did talk to President Zelensky about on Friday was other capabilities that could achieve a similar purpose. And so we are working on that now, other anti-air systems uh, that could help uh, take um, some, uh, help the Ukrainians make progress uh, in terms of uh, dealing with the threat that is coming from the air from the Russian side. We are working on that intensively in close coordination with our allies. So I really appreciated the way that Dana Bash framed this question. You know, she set up the actual situation. But her actual question was, are you talking about another way to get Ukraine these planes or are you ruling it out completely? And Sullivan talks quite a bit there about the process, but he doesn't really answer the question except to maybe suggest that they've kind of ruled it out completely and they're not trying to work it. You know, they're not saying, no, but here's how we can get these planes. It's more like, no, we're not getting you the planes. Here's something else you can have. Right. And I I do agree with your assessment that the question itself was excellent, talking about this was a deal that seemed like it was going to happen. Then it was rejected. The deal, you know, was complicated because it goes to the U.S. military base. I I thought that was really important to note. I guess I would say is, you know, Jake Sullivan, I think, later talks about how it was about how to solve the problem that Ukraine is facing in terms of needing air support without it being through these specific weapons, through these specific aircraft that they are asking for. It's like if somebody, if your neighbor comes and says like, hey, do you have breadcrumbs? And you're like, no, I do not have breadcrumbs. And it's like, but I'll give you cornflakes, which you can crush and <laughs> season if you'd like. <laughs> and then that makes breadcrumbs. Right. <laughs> you're like, uh, I need it right now. Yeah. So, but the the tension is that essentially Biden, based off the advice of his military commanders, based off of advice from allies, felt like Russia would freak out, right? Like, ultimately, right. they're trying to keep crazy Putin at bay. Later in the show on State of the Union, Dana Bash talks to Senator Portman, Rob Portman. He is a Republican senator from Ohio. And... He makes the note that, like, Putin's already mad at us. He already thinks that everything's an escalation. So how can we use that reasoning to determine whether or not we agree to this request by Ukraine? Well, I know that you have been urging the U.S. to help Ukraine uh, get fighter jets through and from from Poland. And they were going to do it through a U.S. air base. But you just heard Jake Sullivan mention that the intelligence community assessment is that that move would risk an escalation. Are you worried that giving those planes to Ukraine could actually trigger World War III? Uh, I don't know why that would be true. Uh, You know, the the Russians have complained about everything. Uh, Vladimir Putin has said that the sanctions are an act of war. Uh, They certainly complained when we uh, provided stingers directly from the U.S. government, um, which can knock down an airplane and have been successful in doing that at lower altitudes. 
We have given them helicopters. As recently as January, we provided them U.S. military helicopters, and those are directly from the United States. In this case, this would be Poland providing these airplanes, which are Soviet-style planes, old planes, uh, MiG-29s. There are also two other countries, uh, Slovakia and Bulgaria, that have these airplanes. Mm -hmm. What we've heard directly from the Ukrainians is they want them badly. They want the ability to have better control over the, over the skies in order to give them a fighting chance. Uh, so I don't understand why we're not doing it. We initially gave it a green light, uh, as you know, last weekend. Uh, the Secretary of State said it was going to get a green light. And uh, for some reason now we're well, blocking it. So I, I don't understand why this is any worse than from a Russian point of view than other things well, isn't that, the issue uh, we've that we've already done or that we're talking about. Isn't the issue that they would go through an American airbase, Ramstein, and that that is what is seen as an escalation? I mean, I've certainly heard that from from uh, from military sources. I'm sure you have. Well, again, we've sent lots of weaponry uh, through military bases. In fact, we were just with the 82nd Airborne last night, uh, who are here in Poland, thank God, and they're doing a terrific job. Uh, but this is what we've been doing all along. So I, I don't see that change. Wow, this is a really good discussion. Right, and I think it's something that the administration is going to have to be able to answer to because I think it's compelling Especially at the same time, there are all these rumors and conversations about how unstable Putin is, how irrational he's b making these decisions and how few people he's listening to. And so if like that is the state of the villain, <laughs> right, then how can you assume that logical reasoning of what will be considered an escalation will actually be true on the other side? And so it's like worrying more about what, how the bully sees something as opposed to the needs of the victim. Right. Yes. And I don't see how the Biden administration is answering that very well yet. It's just so strange. It's such an odd change of tune from the administration when like top people in the administration gave it the green light and then the Pentagon put out some report or the intelligence community did and it completely spooked and changed course uh, you know made made the uh administration change course and i don't think we've really seen what that actually is i i think they're kind of talking around it i mean it, it can't be what they're saying because uh, this is a very compelling point that portman is making that's how i felt too Looking at a couple other administration officials, Jake Sullivan was also on Meet the Press and Chuck Todd wanted to explore the use of chemical or biological weapons and how wh what is the administration's current thinking on a response if either one of those scenarios were to happen. The other major development of the week was this warning from Western intelligence that Russia was preparing perhaps to use chemical or biological weapons. The president used the phrase severe price uh, in reaction to what, you know, what would what would happen if Russia did this? He said they'd pay a severe price. I assume these economic sanctions are a severe price. Can you define what that phrase means? I'm not going to in public lay out the specifics of the severe consequences that Russia would face were it to actually use chemical or biological weapons inside Ukraine. I will just say that the United States, in coordination with our allies and partners, is prepared 
to impose such severe consequences. And we have communicated that directly to the Russians. Mm -hmm. We have consulted with our allies and partners about it. Uh, and we are prepared for that eventuality. And part of the reason, Chuck, that we're so concerned that this may happen is that when Russia starts accusing other countries of potentially doing something, it's a good tell that they may be on the cusp of doing it themselves. What we're here to do is to deny them the capacity to have a false flag operation, to blame this on the Ukrainians or on us, to take away their pretext, and to make the world understand that if chemical weapons are used mm -hmm. in Ukraine, it is the Russians who will have used them, and uh, the response will, as the president said, be severe. So you want strategic ambiguity here, meaning you want Putin to think the consequence could be anything? We want to be able to communicate directly to Russia uh, alongside our allies what those consequences could be. But I do not want to sit in public uh, and lay out every possible option available to the president, available to our allies to respond. Uh, we would prefer to do this uh, directly through channels. And we think that puts us in the best position to deter it and the best position to respond uh, should they actually move forward with a chemical attack. So a couple of things stand out here, right? That there is rumors that Putin is considering this. And so I think it's a very fair question by Chuck Todd to say, like, what, what does severe price mean? Considering right. we've already been doing that. And this would be inherently worse. I also kind of understand the response from the Biden administration to say like, hey, we can't like lay out all of our cards on the table, but, you know, we, we do have a plan in place. I mean, and I think Chuck Todd is, again, fair to say, like strategic ambiguity here. Is, is that just your, your play? Like, is that what you're trust asking the American people to trust you on? Yeah, apparently that's it. But take a listen to how this question was asked versus what we see Martha Raddatz do on this week, also talking around escalation. Her example is much more kind of spe specific hypotheticals, which I don't know, for some reason came off very differently for me. In this interview, she's talking to John Kirby, a spokesman for the Department of Defense. If those attacks on military supply centers cross into Poland, and I know that is a fear uh, of the United States and the NATO allies, what changes? Kamala Harris just reaffirmed the pledge, the Article 5 pledge to defend NATO members. If they strike in Poland, what happens? Well, look, we take our Article 5 commitment very seriously, and the vice president was, uh, was pretty firm about that on a recent visit. So has been Secretary Austin. Uh, an armed attack against one is considered an armed attack against all. That is why, Martha, we continue to flow and to move and to reposition forces and capabilities along NATO's eastern flank to make sure uh, that we can defend every inch of NATO territory if we need to. Now, there's no reason we should need to, uh, because there's no reason that there should be war in Ukraine as it is. And we've made it very clear to Russia uh, that uh, NATO territory will be defended not just by the United States, but by our allies. We have a deconfliction uh, uh, mechanism set up so that we can, we can talk to the Russian Ministry of Defense. That system is working. That line is working. Uh, and we will well, absolutely not hesitate to use it if we need to. But, but this was just 10 miles from that border. I just crossed that border uh, the other day. Doesn't this change the way you look at things? They're getting closer and closer 
to our NATO allies. I can tell you that we have been consistently concerned about NATO's eastern flank and that airspace uh, and, of course, that ground space on that flank of NATO. And we continue to look for ways to bolster the defenses of our NATO allies. We continue to look for ways to try to protect that airspace. Just a few days ago, as you know, Martha, uh, we repositioned two Patriot batteries from Germany into Poland, not far from where you are right now, to make sure that we can absolutely defend that airspace. So I thought these very specific examples or these very specific hypotheticals, it just comes off a little bit more fear-mongering was my general impression and and just felt more jingoistic. And I don't know if that's just me or kind of how I read Martha Raddatz having these conversations. It's just, it feels different than when Chuck, saw, when Chuck Todd asks, hey, if Putin is exploring this, what does this mean for us? Versus if Putin does X thing, what are we going to do? I don't know. Am I like off base here? Like what, what's your impression, Brendan? I think it's kind of in the phrasing a little bit, and it's a little bit in how she personalizes it, right? If we look at what she actually says here, she says, if they strike in Poland, what happens? You know, that's a specific question. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence for why Russia would strike in Poland, which is why Kirby says there's no reason for that, right? That's kind of the first thing he says. She says, it was 10 miles from the border, just 10 miles. You just crossed that border. Doesn't this change the way you look at things? They're getting closer and closer to our NATO allies, which makes it sound like uh, it's like Zeno's. They're coming for you. Yeah, like it's Zeno's paradox. They keep getting closer and closer. They're having that distance. Eventually, they'll get there, right? That's what it sounds like when someone says closer and closer. That, I think, in particular, sounds like the fear-mongering that, that we're talking about. Because she sounds like she believes Russia's doing this and they're planning to do this, but there's, again, no evidence strategically why they would strike Poland or NATO. Right. But she wants to know the eventualities. She wants to know the preparation. She wants to know what they're doing to stop it, too. Again, I, I started this segment saying I have very few answers and just lots of questions, and... I think this is probably one of the first times I'm following a military or, you know, violent moment in the early buildup of it and actively <laughs> observing how news or news organizations are framing it and explaining it or lack thereof. There have been kind of like foreign affairs disasters i'm thinking like north korea with president trump right. and you know chinese escalations diplomatically and sanctions and, and stuff like that so it's you know explaining foreign crises is not something that's like new for polylog but i do think you know just kind of in the retrospectives that i have learned and read and listened about the early invasion in Iraq and Afghanistan, it just seems like <laughs> we got it wrong in so many ways. And and I'm trying to be really mindful of what I'm being told about Ukraine, what I'm being told we should be doing or have done or, or need to do, and kind of the impact on me as, you know, an American voter 
but also as someone who cares about humanitarian issues it's just it's it's new to be frank at least for me personally to be this hyper aware of kind of what i'm being told and i'm trying not to just take things at face value and i would encourage everyone to kind of skeptical isn't the word but just like very actively curious as to how this story is being presented to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all have to be careful, not just about how we're talking about U.S. involvement, but how we're understanding what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah. You know, there's so many, you know, viral moments or headlines that talk about attacks that it's really hard to get a sense of, you know, who's who's winning this war or how many civilians or military uh, members have been killed. It was actually, I think, just today that it was released that Ukraine said how many Ukrainian military members have been killed in this conflict. And it appears at this point that it's more civilians than military members and soldiers. So just it's it's really hard to get that real sense of what's going on. And then on top of that, you layer on the biases or you know, different journalists feeling like we're not doing enough or we're not answering their questions or the diplomats are keeping too much close to their vest. So, yes, there's absolutely a lot to just listen to very carefully and parse very carefully. And that kind of takes us to the dialogue challenge. And I actually have two Mm. dialogue challenge points today. The first is a simple, easy one. And that is simply to go out, if you haven't already, and watch the film 13 Days. So this is a dramatization of a real American event that happened between the U.S. and the Soviet Union over the fact that the Soviet Union was putting medium and long-range ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles, in Cuba, threatening Washington, D.C. and all sorts of other places in the U.S. And the Kennedy administration's effort to stop it and deal with that. And the reason I point this out are myriad, but one of them is that it is the U.S. and a predecessor of Russia, the Soviet Union, two nuclear superpowers dealing through another country, in that case it was Cuba, in this case it's Ukraine, and trying to resolve potential military conflicts without engaging in World War III. So... A lot of concern about how the other side will interpret moves that are being made, whether those are escalations or not escalations. You know, the U.S. ultimately put in a naval blockade to Cuba, which Russia deemed as an act of war. So there's a lot of parallels to that. And the movie is really well directed, really well written and Lots of people sitting in rooms trying to figure out how to deal with a situation very similar to this. So that is my first dialogue challenge. 13 Days is also one of those movies that Brendan somehow is able to loop into the conversation at least once a month. So it, you'd be a real polylog diehard to, to get at that level. But Brendan, you said you also had another dialogue challenge? Yeah, so I talked about the impacts, I talked about the inspiration, and one thing that 
occurred to me and that I have noticed in this coverage is something as simple as spelling and the power behind spelling. Are you familiar with this, Naomi? The spelling of the word Kiev, the capital of Ukraine? Well, just that we, the first couple of weeks of this story, I saw the kind of Anglo spelling of it and later saw the Ukrainian spelling. There was one spelling, K-I-E-V, which we might be familiar with because it's been everywhere forever. And then there's the other spelling, K-Y-I-V, which looks very different on the page, even though it's not all that different. Both of them, again, are English spellings of Cyrillic words to describe the same place. But one of them is the Russian spelling and the other is the Ukrainian spelling. And for years, we have used the Russian spelling all over U.S. media, all over everything, K-I-E-V, and now everyone has switched to K-Y-I-V. And there was actually a campaign around this, an online campaign started by the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs back in 2018 called Kiev, not Kiev, K-Y-I-V, not K-I-E-V. And it was to persuade English language media and organizations to use the spelling derived from the Ukrainian language for the capital of Ukraine instead of derived from the Russian language for that same place. It's just fascinating to realize that KYIV was actually legally mandated by the Ukrainian government way back in 1995, and it was standardized by the United Nations in 2012, but still we were spelling it wrong. Still we were spelling it the Russian way because of, I don't know, laziness or thinking that Ukraine wasn't worth it. Like, it's just insane. And now finally we are spelling it correctly. Well, (laughs) respecting cultures and language is not a strong suit of Americans. Yeah, and just for an example of that, so we work from the transcripts of these shows as we're reading them and gathering our clips and everything. Obviously, we don't just read them, but it helps in preparation. I noticed that K-I-E-V showed up in the Face the Nation transcript, even though K-Y-I-V dominated in that transcript. Like, it's still inconsistent across those things. But I do want to point out one other thing that I found very interesting, and that is that a lot of people think of Ukrainian and Russian as like the same language. And it's not. Uh, I kind of looked it up. There was a great article on this from Britannica that they published very recently about how similar the languages are. And they noted that one frequently cited figure is that Ukrainian and Russian as languages share 62% of their vocabulary. And it seems like, okay, well, that seems like enough, right? Well, that's the same amount of shared vocabulary between English and Dutch. And yeah, I I can't speak Dutch. (laughs) And they're pretty different languages. Yeah, pretty damn different. So the dialogue challenge is to think about not just the words you use, but how you spell them. And what your reference point is. Exactly. Well, if you want to spell any words to us, we would welcome it. You can email us at podcast.polylog.com. That's P-O-L-I-L-O-G-U-E. Oh Oh my gosh, Brendan. (laughs) Or you can tweet at me at Naomi underscore... You can tweet at me at Beastidal, and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. 
Thanks, everyone. And we will talk to you real soon. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.